You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. This is episode 97. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you stories of fantastic adventure, fresh off the writing desk. So let's get started with this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you part two of my Metamore City short story, Fire in the Sky. If you haven't listened to episode 96 yet, go back and catch up before continuing on with this week's installment. This is a short piece, so I'm not going to waste time on a story recap. Here's part two. Fire in the Sky A Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Part 2 It took a frustratingly long time for Liam to get a word with the captain. The fleet was trying to maneuver its scattered airships back together while simultaneously navigating over hostile terrain repairing the damage they had sustained in the bombing run, and fending off scattered attacks from enemy flyers. The Waziri carpetmen had a limited tactical range. They used captured air spirits to provide propulsion, and the creatures grew exhausted quickly when they had to carry a heavy carpet and two human passengers. Still, Espaku had enough of them in its service that they continued to harry the Allied fleet for more than fifty miles after they had passed the foundry. Twice Liam had nearly caught the captain's attention when he and his men had to hurry off and deploy their defensive screens against some new enemy attack. Finally, the last of the enemy carpetmen returned to base, the holes in the capsule had been mended, and the captain ushered Liam into his cabin to listen to his concerns. Liam described the vision he had seen, of flames and death and blood-stained teeth and claws. The captain listened intently, his expression stoic betraying nothing. "'And that's what I saw, sir,' Liam finished. "'I think the spakes laid a trap for us.' For another second or two, the captain just looked at him. When at last he spoke, his tone was curious. "'Do you have visions of this sort often, Major?' Liam frowned. "'Of what sort, sir?' "'Of doom,' the captain said. "'Of disaster, of misfortune.' Liam considered. Well, sir, there's been more than enough of all three since the war started. I've seen a fair bit of it. Hmm. The captain pursed his lips, his eyes distant. The reason I ask is this. I've known people with the sight before. Sometimes they would describe to me what they saw. One said that the future was like a jumble of overlapping songs, as if a dozen symphonies were playing at once. Liam nodded. It was as good an analogy as he had heard for the chaotic, shifting nature of the sight. The trouble was, the captain continued, with so many themes being played at once, he couldn't accurately make out any of them. All that stood out were fragments, a crash of cymbals, a beating drum, a moment of ugly discord where two themes clashed. The captain did something then that Liam had never seen before. He smiled. 
It was not a happy smile, but it was kind and gentle and well-meaning. My prophetic friend could hear every note being played, but he could not hear the music. Whenever he saw the future, he saw no sense, no context, no beauty. Only chaos and confusion and noise. I'm afraid it drove him mad in the end. Liam gritted his teeth and looked down at the floor. Sir, I think my talents have proved themselves to be worth more than that. To be sure, the captain said. Your gift defended us ably during our attack run. But even the best seers are not infallible. We proceed as planned. But is it worth the risk? The words burst out of Liam, sudden and unrestrained. By all the gods, sir, it was a miracle we survived that run at all. If when we reach our landing site at Axum, it'll be a miracle twice over. Isn't that enough? Why risk the fleet on another target when I've lost the element of surprise? The captain gave him a chiding look. Major, you know I don't have the authority to alter the mission. I respect your talent, son, but I'm not going to question the Admiral's orders on the basis of one fragmented vision. Then we're dead after all, Liam thought but he had enough sense not to say that to his commanding officer. The captain rose to his feet, and perforce Liam did likewise. Liam was a small man, and the captain loomed head and shoulders over him in the confined space of the cabin. The older man nodded to him. Dismissed, Major. See to your men. We have about two hours before we reach the secondary target. Liam saluted. Aye, aye, sir. He left the captain's cabin and went below decks. The medical bay was on the lower deck, squeezed between the crew barracks to fore and the engineering compartment to aft. The injured airmen overflowed the bay and extended out into the barracks, lying on cots or sitting up against the walls as they waited for treatment. Most of the casualties were from the scattershot, and some were truly gruesome. Severed arms and legs, men blinded in one or both eyes, and worst of all, the poor sods with shrapnel in their bellies, slowly dying of sepsis from their own shredded bowels. These men were as good as dead already. The medics would give them a little morphine when time permitted, but they had to focus their efforts on restoring those who could return to the fight. Liam had no idea what to do. He was barely a grown man himself, but fate had left him in command of these fellows, most of whom were hardly a year or two his junior. He wandered back and forth among them, offering what comfort he could. A grip of a hand, a pat on the back, a few meaningless words of reassurance that he forgot as soon as he had said them. He could not imagine that any of it had helped, but the men seemed grateful for it nonetheless. After about half an hour, he withdrew to the officer's mess. He felt sick to his stomach, not hungry, but he knew he should at least try to eat something. He forced down a biscuit, half an apple, and a little tea, and felt somewhat better. Then he took out his casting chalice and set it in front of him on the table. He poured in a little water, then gripped the cup in both hands and focused on the dark, shimmering reflections on the surface. Possible futures swirled in and out of focus before his sight. He saw a little girl, with red hair like his own, and eyes the color of emeralds. He saw his own hands paging through an ancient black book filled with indecipherable writing. He saw a cheerful man with a goatee and an odd-looking green suit extending a hand to help Liam to his feet. 
He watched himself die in a dozen horrible ways. By canister shot, by thirst in a trackless desert, by magic, his own or that of others, by gunfire and airship crashes, and a half-dozen bottles of Seth Morin whiskey. After one particularly gruesome death, he closed his eyes and shut off the visions. This is not helping. He had been hoping for some glimpse of the trap that awaited them, a clue that might allow them to avoid the nightmare of claws and teeth that had struck him on the poop deck. Instead, his sight kept returning to all the other ways he might die. Feckin' useless, he thought, glaring down at the little cup of water in his hands. He gripped the stem of the chalice and nearly threw it across the room, but some quieter, saner part of himself stayed his hand. He looked down at the water again, expecting to see only his own reflection. Instead, he saw the goateed man in the green suit. Now he did not look like one of Liam's visions. The image was crisp and steady, as clear as if Liam were looking through a pane of glass. Not a divination, then, but a scrying spell. Liam was seeing something that was happening now, not events that might come to pass in some possible future. The man gazed back at him over the rim of another chalice, this one much larger and finer than the one in Liam's hands. His eyes met Liam's, and Liam saw that they were a bright, vivid green. They focused on Liam with a look of intense interest, and the man cocked his head, a sharp, bird-like motion. Liam's breath caught in his throat. He wasn't doing this, he was quite sure of that. The goateed man spoke. His voice echoed out of the cup, high and tinny, but perfectly clear. Ah, there you are. I knew I'd heard someone knocking. Who, who are you? Liam asked. His voice shook, and he hated it. A worthy question, the man said. His lip curled up wryly at one corner. Perhaps not the most pertinent or useful one, though, given your present circumstances. Astonishment mixed with terror in Liam's heart. You know me? The man in the cup clucked his tongue in disappointment. Really, now, that's not useful or worthy. Come on, you can do better. Try again. An angry retort formed on Liam's lips, but he bit it back before he could give it voice. Whoever this man was, he was clearly a mage of tremendous power and skill, given that he had sensed Liam's divination and tracked it back to him in a matter of minutes. What does he want? What game is he playing? But something told Liam that those, too, were the wrong questions to ask. He thought about what the man had just said. Pertinent or useful, given your present circumstances? And then it came to him. How do I save my ship from the trap that's being laid for us? The goateed man smiled. You must ask yourself what it wants more than anything in the world. Liam frowned. What it wants? What what wants? Good luck, Liam, the man said. Then he dipped his fingers into the chalice. The surface of the water rippled, and the image vanished. Just then an alarm sounded through the ship. The first mate's voice came through the speaking tubes. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. General quarters. All hands to general quarters. Man your battle stations. This is not a drill. Heart pounding, Liam scooped up the chalice and hurried topside. 
His surviving point defenders were already forming up in ranks on the main deck, their casting implements at the ready. A handful of the lightly injured had returned to service, but his unit was still badly depleted. The captain stood above them on the quarterdeck, his spyglass in his hand and his expression grim. He beckoned to Liam, and Liam joined him. The captain passed him the spyglass. "'Tell me what you make of this, Major. Twelve degrees to port, five degrees down.' Liam looked in the direction indicated. The flotilla was passing over a rocky patch of desert, at an altitude of less than a thousand feet, no doubt to hide their movements from distant enemy observers. Jagged mountains rose on their port side, with smaller hills to starboard. Liam's ship was in the lead, as they had been before their initial attack run at the capital. They had just passed an especially large mountain on the port side, revealing a broad, flat mesa about ten miles beyond it. A set of enormous symbols had been painted atop the mesa. The glyphs must have each been twenty or thirty feet across, and they formed a vast circle at least a mile in diameter. By the stars, Liam breathed. That's a casting circle. Biggest I've ever seen. The captain pitched his voice low, so only Liam could hear. Can you tell its purpose? Liam stared at the symbols, and at the weave of magic that ran between them. I don't recognize the sigils, he admitted. The spakes use a different system of magic. But there is a vast amount of mana in that thing, and it's active. Safe to say it'd be no good thing for us if we run afoul of it. The captain seemed to chew on that for a moment. When he spoke again, his voice was slightly hesitant. Can you not foresee what will happen when the circle is triggered? The sense of impending doom crept over Liam again. All right, he thought. Let's just poke the big spell working with a stick and see what happens. Old Liam didn't need his head for anything, did he? Out loud, he said. I could try, but it's risky, sir. Spells that large can be unstable, even they're disturbed. The backlash could kill us surer than an artillery shell. Or kill me, at any rate. It may not even be a weapon. Might be it's a weather enchantment, or a binding on some mountain spirit. And if it is meant for us, then like as not they've screened it against divination. Even if I don't blow us up, I might not learn anything. The captain nodded slowly. I must advise Admiral Ballantyne. Keep watch, and let me know if anything changes. Aye, sir. The captain adjusted a few levers and dials on his speaking tube, stuck his mouth inside the opening, and began talking in a low, muffled voice. After a moment, he turned and pressed his ear against the tube. He continued in this fashion for perhaps five minutes, while the fleet drew ever closer to the casting circle. Liam tried to keep his focus on the spyglass, but he kept throwing worried glances over his shoulder at the captain. Come on then, Admiral. Make a bleeding decision afore it's made for us. At last, the captain turned back to Liam. Any change, Major? Nice so far as I can see. Good. Helm, turn us forty degrees to starboard. Forty degrees to starboard, aye, sir, the helmsman said. He moved several cranks and levers to adjust flaps and pectoral sails, and adjusted the output to the port and starboard propellers. Slowly, the ship began to yaw to starboard. We'll circle around the mountains on the southwest side, the captain told Liam. Can you look ahead, see what awaits us that way? Here Liam felt on safer ground. Aye, sir, I can. 
He handed back the spyglass, pulled out his chalice, filled it, and held it before his eyes. Now, instead of projecting his mind into the future, he cast it forward into space, a type of scrying spell called a wizard eye. The spell shot out over the rocky desert terrain, flying far faster than any airship. Liam watched its progress in the surface of the water, the image as crisp and clear as his conversation with the man in the green suit. He rotated the wizard eye this way and that, searching the sky, the ground, and the rocky hills. It all seems deserted, sir, he reported back. Well done, Major, the captain said. Take your men to the poop deck and keep an eye on that casting circle. Aye, aye, sir. He saluted the captain, then beckoned his men to follow him to the stern of the ship. From that vantage point, Liam watched as the line of airships slowly curved away from the mountains, making their way into the more open sky over the hill country. The Espakan spellworking remained active but eerily quiet. Liam could feel the power of the thing pressing against his senses, buzzing in the back of his mind like one of those newfangled lightning coils. Damn you, you bloody thing. What are you doing, anyway? He was still puzzling over the question when a blast of fire came out of nowhere and struck the Admiral's flagship. Bloody hells! Liam watched in horror as the flames coursed over the unwarded capsule. Within seconds, all the cells had ruptured, a chain of explosions that ran from the nose of the ship to the stern. The ship plunged out of the sky, trailing a fireball twice the size of the capsule itself, and broke into flaming pieces on the rocks below. Flame wards! the captain shouted. He wasn't even bothering to use the speaking tubes, just bellowing at the top of his lungs. Flame wards on the capsule, now! Another blast of fire struck a second airship, and the sight of it spurred Liam into action. Do as he says, he commanded his men. Fire mages, counterspell! Aye, sir, his men shouted back, and rushed to obey. In seconds, a shimmering field of water magic surrounded the capsule once more. The firecasters lined the railing of the poop deck, wands at the ready. The next time an enemy fireball appeared, half a dozen mages flung counterspells at it, breaking up the conjured flames and dispelling them before they reached their target. Liam, meanwhile, was frantically scanning the desert floor for the attackers. He no longer had the captain's spyglass, and the countless rocks and boulders provided ample hiding places for men on foot. Which you might have noticed, if you hadn't been so preoccupied with that bloody diversion, he thought bitterly. Against the background of the enormous spellworking, the arcane signatures of a few individual sorcerers would have been small and subtle, like the whistling of a flute during an artillery barrage. Still, I should have seen it. This is my fault. The stinging shame of his failure sparked another emotion inside Liam a deep, seething rage. He embraced it, drew on it, and used it as a channel to draw up more power. A spell took shape in his mind, one that he had only conceived of a few months ago, when a group of the Chorus Fire Mages had been mocking the watercasters for their lack of offensive spells. It had been purely a theoretical exercise at the time, intended only to help Liam win a bet at the tavern, but he still remembered how to cast it. So, you like things that burn, do ya? He growled as he raised his chalice in one hand and stretched out the other toward the ground below. Let's see how you like this!
A swirling, smoking ball of yellow-brown liquid popped into existence before Liam's outstretched hand. With a flick of his fingers, it streaked toward the earth, trailing a cloud of orange-red vapors in its wake. When it had gone a few hundred feet, Liam clenched his fist, and the ball exploded outward, pelting a half-mile-wide patch of earth with smoking yellow rain. With dark amusement, Liam remembered the fire mages at the tavern recoiling in horror, as his conjured yellow liquid made their metal drinking flagons burst into flames. Everyone thought of water mages as being able to shape mana into water, but as Liam had demonstrated, there was no reason it couldn't be used to make other liquids, such as fuming nitric acid. Liam's acid storm reacted instantly with the desert rocks, and within seconds, a cloud of red-brown nitrogen dioxide gas blanketed the earth. Immediately, half a dozen men rose from their hiding spots and ran, fleeing from the cloud of burning, poisonous gas. Liam's fellow point defenders quickly struck them down with their own fireballs or blasts of conjured lightning. Those unlucky enough to be struck by the acid directly suffered an even worse fate, as the acid chewed through their skin and burned the fat and muscles beneath. Liam was glad he was too far away to see the grisly details, but he felt no remorse, only a grim satisfaction. Let that teach you to quarrel with the Empire. But then a sound like thunder came from the casting circle, and from a swirling vortex of light and darkness, a vast, winged nightmare clawed its way into the world. And that was part two. Come back next week for the conclusion of Fire in the Sky. E.L. Doctorow said, Writing is an exploration. You start from nothing and learn as you go. It's like driving a car at night. You never see further than your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. So, buckle your seatbelts and let's hit the road. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,271 words this week, over the course of 6.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 633 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 144 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of March, I wrote a total of 21,802 words over 31 days, averaging 703 words per day. I spent 33.5 hours writing last month. Compared to February, my word count increased by 34%, and my writing time increased by 33%. March was my fifth most productive month for writing since the beginning of 2016. This week I continued working on Fire in the Sky. As you know by now, if you're listening to this, the story did not wrap up in 6,000 words like I thought it would. It's definitely approaching the final act, though so I expect to get this one finished in the coming week. Over on the Patreon feed, Ben Clifford has sent us another preview of this month's bonus illustration. This is the moment from Things Unseen where Morgan and Misty meet Omega, the clockwork guardian of Kaya's Nexus. 
This week we got a peek at the architecture Ben has designed for the Hall of Remembrance, and it looks very cool indeed. The preview is available to all patrons at the $3 a month level or higher. Remember, becoming a patron is the very best thing you can do to support this podcast and help me keep making it. A pledge of $1 a month gets you my behind-the-scenes commentary podcast, as well as Ben's completed story illustrations. For $3 a month, you also get sneak peeks like the art previews and cover reveals. And at $10 a month, you get a seat in my Creators Council, where you get a chance to influence which stories I work on next. Becoming a patron is easy. All you need is a PayPal account or a credit card. Just go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Check out the reward levels and make a pledge today. And now, the feedback. Rosemary wrote in with her thoughts about Nemesis, my PG Holyfield tribute story, which aired in episode 94. She writes, Sadly, I never got a chance to meet PG. Nonetheless, this story affected me deeply. You can tell a lot about a person by the way their friends honor them. He sounds like an amazing man, and I'm very sorry I never got the chance to know him. I'm even more sorry that there will be no more Avedon Hill. That stuff was delightful. The part of this story that spoke most to me, though, was the idea that you were using each other as motivation to create, and without that competition, you found yourself distracted and uninterested in your craft. I struggle to write for only myself, and I don't have many people around me who are actually interested in reading anything I manage to produce, or half-produce in most cases. Your story, though, the determination to write for yourself, to use your own mortality as a goad to your creativity— That is weirdly helpful to me. I've struggled in the past with apathy and procrastination, but I know what it is to compete with myself. And truly, the only person who's going to be present for my entire life is me. So, if I'm going to create for anyone, it should be first and foremost for myself. And that needs to be enough motivation, because it's unwise and unfair of me to ask anyone else to fulfill that role. I've been getting that message in various forms for a fair amount recently. Thank you for reinforcing it. You're very welcome, Rosemary. Learning not to compare ourselves or measure ourselves against other people is, I think, one of the hardest lessons of growing up, at least in our hyper-competitive capitalist society. I won't lie, it used to bother me that I couldn't write as fast as some of my author friends. I could get pretty self-conscious about it, and it was easy to start thinking of myself as a failure. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is that it gives me a public record to measure myself against myself. I haven't gotten to the point yet where I'm consistently beating my past self in my writing output, but just being able to look back and see how much I've accomplished is a huge encouragement to keep going. We're coming up on the third anniversary of my starting this podcast, and in that time, I've written nearly half a million words. And just like exercising, the longer you've been doing it, the easier it is to keep doing it. Thanks for the note. Last week on my YouTube channel, I interviewed author Lauren Scribe Harris about her new novel, Unleash. The book is now available for pre-order, and over on the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group, you can find both a link to our interview and a sneak peek at the book's gorgeous cover. If you're a fan of contemporary fantasy, and let's face it, if you listen to Metamorph City, you probably are, then you should definitely check this book out. And watch for an edited version of my interview with Scribe in a future episode of this podcast. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, 
Send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.